if we could come to more of a consensus about what was going to happen, then things could proceed in a bit more orderly of a fashion. Mm -hmm. um, so anyone who's in this industry, you know, you're in for a chaotic financial ride over the coming, you know, many years. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma. Welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. As I said before, I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today I'm super thrilled to have on Nevin Freeman. Nevin is the co-founder of Reserve, which is producing a stablecoin. They describe stablecoins as a decentralized digital currency designed to be used like normal money. But stablecoins are actually a really complex idea that we're going to get into detail about on this episode. Underlying reserve stablecoin is a protocol that controls the reserve supply in order to keep the price stable relative to the US dollar. We're going to talk about how stablecoins are critical to the adoption of blockchain technology, what growth would look like for a successful stablecoin, and what stablecoins can enable in a decentralized world. We're also going to talk about some of the risks of stablecoins and why it's so hard to create one. There have been a lot of stable coins coming out lately, and we'll get a chance to talk about some of the major other ones coming out and how they all differ in their approaches to this problem of storing or holding value digitally. This is a great episode for going in depth on what's becoming a hot topic in the decentralization space. So I hope you learned something from Nevin's experience at the front lines of stable coins. So now, without any further introduction, here is Nevin Freeman. Nevin Freeman, it is really good to have you here on this episode of Decentralize This. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, we start every episode the same way. I ask our guests, who are you? Professionally, personally, who is Nevin? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm someone who um, is convinced that some of the biggest problems in the world are actually solvable and that some of the sort of out there opportunities can actually be capitalized on um, if, if humans work together well enough. And I'm looking for ways to coordinate people to make that happen uh, over the course of time. That is a really good perspective to have if you're going to work in the decentralization space. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's also a big focus of this podcast. As we've talked about, uh, we try to bring on a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives for the express purpose of seeing whether all these different people with different perspectives can find new ways of collaborating and new ways of building. So I think that you're a great guest. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to be part of the experiment. <laughs> well, we all are. So I think it's I think it's a good place to be right about now. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about where we are now, uh, especially with reserve. So that's that's your current project. And I want to talk about how did you get from what you've been doing, let's say for the last five years, how did you get to where you are now with Reserve. What were you working on in the past that inspired you to get to this point now? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so you know, one thing that I've personally thought a lot about and sort of been spending years preparing to uh, to try to address is the future of artificial intelligence. And in doing that, I've thought a lot about you know what is it that causes everyone 
to, to devote effort to whatever it is they're doing day in, day out, right? If you look around at all the people, we're all sort of scurrying around and doing things um, all the time. Like, how do we sort of collectively decide? And fundamentally, um, that kind of comes down to money, right? So this financial system, this capitalist system is like, you know, it has lots of flaws, but it's also that is kind of the way that we all collectively organize and decide who's going to do what on any given day of the week. Um, and so that kind of led me to spending a bunch of time puzzling about, well, how does money work? How did it come to be the way that it is? Is it possible that we could improve it? And the part of the world that that's seeing the most innovation in money right now is is cryptocurrency. Um, and so it was very natural to kind of think about, well, if you get programmable money, does that allow you to actually improve the way that human coordination works? And and kind of getting to reserve, reserve is actually kind of only step one in that much, much bigger picture where the way I see it, um, the very first thing that we're trying to do is take a functional monetary um, unit, you know, the U.S. dollar, and essentially export that stability into a bunch of regions of the world that don't have access to it right now um, for, for various complicated reasons. And then in the longer term, produce a, an independently unit, uh, independently stable unit um, of currency that might be even better than existing fiat currencies over the long periods of time. Um, but then even beyond that, there's a whole lot more that I'm excited to experiment with um, if, once you get sort of money on the blockchain in terms of how it actually works. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And it sounds like, you know, that that's a little bit of the history of how we got here. And it sounds like there's a ton of steps after this that reserve, as you said, is step one. So we're, we're solidly in, in the middle stages here uh, yeah. of the evolution. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious here, like, what were you working on like immediately before? Like what was the genesis of reserve like day one when, when reserve launched in your mind like what what was the what was the first day of reserve in your mind when did it really come to be um yeah that's a good question so i've been i spent several years um putting together uh, helping put together a company builder which is this group of people that are sort of ambitious in the way that i am um where we recruit people in advance of them having any particular project or company. So it's not quite like an incubator. Um, you, you sort of start a little more ground up. And so the genesis of reserve in terms of day one was, you know, kind of, how do I put this? It's like, you know, two things attracted us to this project. One is just straightforwardly the opportunity to make money. Um, we have these huge things we want to do in the future. We really want to make a lot of money so that we can fund a bunch of that stuff. Some of that stuff is not profitable, and so you have to have the money in advance. And then the other, like I said, is this fascination with how to coordinate humans better. And so, um, and so essentially, you know, we we and and I had thought a lot about how to make cryptocurrency work from an intellectual perspective um, last year when so much momentum started to build, especially in the mainstream about it. Um, we sort of turned our attention back to cryptocurrency and asked ourselves. Could we make a lot of money and simultaneously make some contribution to how human coordination works? And, and so then specifically that led to us making a list of all the problems with Bitcoin on a whiteboard and asking ourselves, could we actually solve all these, either all at once or the crucial ones up front and then the rest of them over time? I want to see this whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a, what it was, what a, was on the whiteboard? What did you, what did you have up there? Um, so, you know, a lot of things that, that people talk about commonly, you know, about like the transaction speed, um, and, 
um, and privacy issues, you know, in terms of like the the speed of, of the technology that actually allows you to make private transactions and then stability. I mean, stability was number one on the list mm. um, for, for, for right from the very beginning. Um, but then there kind of start to be actually challenges where they, they have a tension, where solving one makes the other more difficult. Um, and these are these are where it starts to get tricky, in our opinion. So, for instance, um, you know, people and companies will tend to have the incentive for full privacy, right? They would they would like it if no one out in the market knew how much money they had or who they were sending money to, et cetera. Governing bodies, of course, want the opposite. They want full visibility if they can get it into who has how much money and who's sending money to who else. And um, and so then kind of the, the, the end game like win state from those different perspectives might be totally different. And so the way we see that is like, um, how can we create a system that actually kind of appeases both groups, you know, and actually preserves enough um, power of, of some regulators to get information about what's going on so that um, the, the basic principle of being able to like follow the money to stop crime isn't completely sort of thrown to the wayside, but then still permit privacy in many, many instances where it makes sense to. Um, and so so those those are like some of the more you know tricky challenges that we alighted upon when we were thinking that through. Yeah, they're definitely tricky challenges, especially around the privacy aspect is something that in Enigma we think a lot about, as well as the scalability aspect. I mean, you're, you're attacking some of the most fundamental challenges when it comes to decentralized technologies, and you're trying to improve on something, Bitcoin, uh, that is really the first experiment at scale, most would say, um, with trying to decentralize the banking system. Right. And now, and now you're doing this with stable coins, and I, I think you're alluding to the fact that a stable coin is very different from Bitcoin. So, for the audience, what is a stable coin, and why why would we need one? Yeah. So, you know, a stable coin is is you can sort of think of the ideal stable coin as having all of the good properties of Bitcoin, um, but having a value or a purchasing power that stays the same over time. Um, and, and so the simplest way to think about that is that it has a price that stays the same, a price denominated in some fiat currency like U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. so, if, so if you have a stable coin where the coin is always worth one dollar, um, then, um, that, you know, then that's, that's approximating a stable coin. In the sort of purest sense, a stable coin would have a, a value that doesn't change such that even if the U.S. dollar goes up or down in value, um, the sort of real purchasing power of that coin, you know, in one region or around the world stays the same. And then for the for the question of why, what's the purpose? Um, there are actually many different possible applications of a stable coin. And so there are some purposes that that we're particularly excited about that I'm happy to describe. Um, but we also kind of see it as an open ended thing where once we create it, um, probably we'll be pretty surprised by a lot of the things that other people out in the world use it for. Um, it's it's kind of the ultimate generic platform in in the way that money generally is. Um, but so, you know, some some applications that we're excited about. You know, number one is basically taking uh, basically offering to people who are in inflationary currency zones um, an asset that they can use to store their value without losing money. And to to put that concretely, there are a bunch of countries in the world 
10, 20, kind of depends on whose numbers you refer to, where the annual inflation is over 20% per year. So, so in many of those cases, that's like you're paying sort of a tax of like 50% or something per year on all of your money, not just on your income. Um, and so that, that really sucks, right? That, that really gets in the way of, the, of basic economic functioning if you really essentially can't store your money without losing it. And, um, and so stable coins are, you know, kind of a technological hack that allow people to get access to stable currencies in situations where they otherwise wouldn't be able to, because usually their local governments don't want them to for various reasons. Um, and it's a bit contentious, like whether that's, that's a good thing or a bad thing to provide them with, with that, um, with that access, but we think it's a good thing. Um, and so that's one application we're pretty excited about. I just talked about stable coins a bit on our last episode with Anthony Pompliano, and we were talking about growth and adoption of all of these different kinds of digital assets. So I'm curious what you think growth looks like, healthy growth looks like for a stable coin, given everything you've just said about how it's supposed to, you know, reflect something that's, uh, you know, traditionally valued like, like the U.S. dollar. Uh, it's supposed to be a peg, essentially. You know, it's not supposed to fluctuate wildly in price. That's kind of the idea. But what people associate with growth very often in the crypto blockchain ecosystem, they don't think something is growing unless the the price of the token underlying the network, let's say, is growing. Um, I I don't think that you or I agree that that's the case. So what does healthy growth look like for a stable coin? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's kind of a few different perspectives you can take. Um, so, um, so, so one is that a lot of stablecoin systems have multiple tokens and, um, and, and reserve is one of those where, you know, in our case, there's a secondary token called reserve shares and, um, the, the purchasers of reserve shares contribute capital to help bootstrap the system. And then if, if reserve is adopted as a currency, then they um, stand to be rewarded for that support in the long term. So in that sense, you could look at the, the value of reserve shares as a metric. But um, the way we think about it um, isn't exactly about that. It's more about kind of the, you know, from this perspective of helping people save money, it's like sort of how much value is not being lost because of people um, being able to store their, their value in a, in a stable way. Um, and so a reasonable approximation of that could just be the total outstanding units of a stable coin um, that are actually, you know, being held um, by populations like this. Um, and, um, and then the way we see it, adoption for something like this in a, in a currency zone like that starts as a way of saving money, not spending it. So we think that um, people in that scenario would be unlikely to switch and start using reserve as a means of exchange anytime soon. Um, because the network effects on the local currency will be really, really strong in the long term, sort of a, a measure of like, you know, extreme success could be, you know, actually a, a mass migration from using it just as, um, a sort of niche savings asset to really using it as the main means of exchange. Um, where at that point, you know, a, a, a currency like reserve would be like pretty cemented in place kind of in the way that fiat currencies are. What do you think of the place that Bitcoin currently holds 
in the in the mind of either the public or I guess at least the blockchain ecosystem where Bitcoin is being treated as a store of value because it's got a, a limited supply by design and that supply is known and the creation schedule is known, you know, and, and as, as contrasted to, you know, the fiat currency supply where it is generally infinite, right? Uh, do you think Bitcoin is a store of value or do you think that it's something else? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that I think the sheer fact that we can ask the question about whether it's going to be a store of value means that it isn't necessarily going to be right because it really comes down to a consensus amongst people, um, you know, wh whether or not they're going to treat it that way. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I, I certainly can't predict with confidence, but. When I try to answer that question and I sort of evaluate the digital gold narrative that is pretty common around Bitcoin, um, the part I get hung up on is that it seems like something like gold uh, was able to maintain that status because there were very few options, because there was very little competition. And so it was a pretty natural shelling point. In the case of Bitcoin, there is and will continue to be so much competition that um, it, it kind of is a question really about um, the, the the marketing capacity and the, the mimetic engineering capacity of future competitors who will be highly incentivized to try to displace Bitcoin with some other token that, you know, that they, you know, have pre-mined or hold a lot of or whatever. And so, um, you know, I think technologically, Bitcoin is is you know pretty well designed to be a, a good store of value, and then it's really a sort of social phenomenon, social question as to whether it will maintain that status. And that's a really interesting perspective on it, right? There's the there's the code itself. There's the ability to through code and incentive design uh, create a system where you can see how something would be acquiring value or sustaining value. And then there's the other piece of it, which is the speculative value of such an asset, which is linked back to its liquidity, which we've discussed in a number of episodes on this podcast. Uh, it's also linked back to what you're talking about with mimetic engineering, which is if enough people believe something to be true, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So what we're saying with reserve as a stable coin, um, you're not relying on the mimetic properties of reserve for it to hold its value. Maybe talk a little bit about technically how it works. How does it hold this peg? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, fundamentally the way that reserve works as a currency, um, is that you have a token that's backed by, a pretty diversified basket of other assets. Mm -hmm. And those other assets are real world assets, commodities, um, and, you know, currencies at least at the beginning and then the long term, um, possibly like other, other things like securities. And so what that means is that, um, you're basically taking a bunch of assets that already exist for whom there is an existing consensus roughly about their value. So they're not too volatile and then aggregating them together 
And so then through that diversification, producing a portfolio that's kind of more stable than maybe any one of the individual assets in the portfolio, and then issuing a token that represents some share of that portfolio, some some portion of that portfolio. And that makes it so that you can take this sort of natural stability that has occurred, you know, with the consensus value of a bunch of different asset classes um, uh, from around the world and sort of impute that into a blockchain token that can be used as a currency. And, and the reason why we're doing it that way, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons um, and it takes a while to get into, but the reason we're doing it that way, one reason is, is because it makes it so that you can eventually have a portfolio that doesn't have currencies in it where you no longer need to peg to the US dollar, to the euro, or to any fiat currency. As long as those assets in that portfolio themselves can maintain a relatively stable value and the whole decentralized issuance and redemption process is functional, um, then you can have you know, a currency that can retain its value even if fiat currencies are experiencing problems. In the short term, that's not feasible because all of those different asset classes haven't been tokenized yet. And so at the very beginning, the portfolio will be you know, very simple in comparison, mm-hmm. um, probably like a small handful of tokenized currencies um, that are, that's over collateralized to make it sort of extra safe. Um, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of our, that's kind of our take on it and, and what we're trying to do with it. I read on your blog, on the Reserve blog, you guys did a massive analysis of one other stablecoin in particular with MakerDAO and DAI. Yep. And it was really interesting that you chose to do that at all. A lot of people would not go into such depth about some might see it as a competitor to the value proposition that you're trying to create. And it's not like this was a takedown. It was just like a very nuanced uh, look at how they had structured their own uh, how they'd structure their own stablecoin. So what inspired you to do such a thorough analysis and then make it public? And then what was the reaction when you did that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, inspired us. I mean, Maker is, I think, one of the most interesting stablecoin projects in existence. Um, they sort of were the first algorithmic stablecoin um, after BitShares at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at first it was really hard for us to understand how the maker system worked because it was very complicated and we would kind of oscillate back and forth between like, oh, we should take the time to fully understand this and see like, have they solved it? And if so, you know, maybe, maybe we don't do this project, maybe it's handled versus like, ah, oh, it's going to take so long. You know, we have to, we have to work on our own technology. Eventually we did take enough time to really deeply mechanistically understand it. And it taught us some interesting lessons and and we found what we felt were a couple of interesting flaws and then a lot of cool properties. And why did we publish it? I mean, you know, we'd already taken so much time to understand and analyze the system um, that writing it up, it's that itself actually wasn't that costly. Um, and we just felt that, um, you know, Maker is very hard to understand because of its complexity, but also because... Um, the documentation has changed over time. We figured we could publish something that would help people understand it. And then, you know, there's, there's a bit of a competitive element too. You're right that it's not a takedown. We were very careful to be straightforward about everything, but we do think that it has one issue. Um, and we kind of wanted to say like, look, 
you know, there are all these things you can learn from this platform, but here's the reason why we don't think this is the best way to do it. And, you know, as, as soon as we publish um, what we're working on, which uh, we're very excited to do, we're going to publish it very soon. Um, we'll sort of be able to talk about like, this is the better way. And, and this is why we think that this is the better way. So that's just one example of a, of a stable coin. And you're right that they, they've done something very interesting. Um, there's some other stable coins as well, or at least purported stable coins. And we recently had the situation with Tether. I'm sure you're familiar with, with yep. Tether and what happens. And, and a few other dollar pegged, at least nominally, stable coins as well, where at least on the exchanges, uh, these things were not pegged to the dollar anymore. And Tether was available for, you know, down to 85 cents on the dollar. Uh was that an instance of a stablecoin peg actually failing or was that just like a short-term arbitrage opportunity and what would happen like what would happen if there were a stablecoin like that you know you a lot of people think that tether underpins a lot of the growth in the uh in the blockchain space at least for these valuations um, whether or not you believe that, I'm just curious, wh what do you think of that whole situation? Wh what happened and was it a failure or just a short-term trading opportunity? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, you know, just to summarize for the listener in case they haven't seen it, basically what happened was a lot of rumors started circulating about, um, you know, sort of specific claims about how the tether backing may not exist because of potential banking issues or what have you. We looked into a lot of it and a lot of it seemed like it was made up actually. So, yeah. so we, we did not become convinced that the money wasn't there. Um, but the way that an exchange rate peg in a system like tether normally works is that, um, you know, there are big buyers who can decide to go buy the token when it's trading at less than a dollar or whatever the peg is. Um, and then and then redeem it for that dollar worth of value um, with the original issuer. And if enough rumors or, or, or even accurate information starts circulating that dissuades those big buyers from um, believing that they actually could buy and redeem um, and take advantage of that arbitrage opportunity, then the token will start to trade at a discount. And I think that's what we saw. Mm -hmm. There was a, a temporary sort of um, drop in confidence, and I think it started to return now. Um, and and then on the other side of that, you saw the other stable coins trade above um, the amount that they're pegged to uh, in many cases because people were probably getting rid of their tether and and migrating into these newer stable coins. Um, and so, you know, on the question of whether it's a it's a failure or not, I think that the ultimate failure for a stable coin like tether would be if it turned out the money really wasn't there, either the you know, the issuer was dishonest about having the money in the bank account or maybe the bank itself failed um, or maybe a government seized the assets from the bank. Those are all possible ways that it could happen. Mm -hmm. And in that scenario, if that news broke, you know, we wouldn't just see the price fluctuating a little bit. We would see it really tanking because all of a sudden everyone would realize there's no way to redeem this for anything. Um, you know, as for the question of like, is it a big deal if something like that fails in the crypto ecosystem? I think the answer is like, yeah, probably it'll probably be pretty disruptive, but I think it's a much less, it's, it's a much smaller deal than if stable coins achieve really mainstream adoption. And then we see a peg breaking, you know, imagine that you 
aren't into crypto now, but two years from now, you know, you're someone in an emerging market and you've put, you know, you're like $10,000 of life savings into a stable coin so that it won't lose its value mm-hmm. or even a thousand dollars. Um, and then, and then the peg breaks, right? So the right. thing that you thought was your way out of losing your money has now lost all of your money for you. That's, that's a terrible, you know, initial introduction. It's, it's directly, it's bad for those people. And, um, and it's, it would be a major setback, I think, for the entire sort of story of, of cryptocurrency, um, because it's like, you know, could be that this first major real world use case um, causes a, a financial upset um, that regulators really don't like. And so it could make it much harder to continue the experiment. Um, so that's kind of the failure scenario that we obsess about um, avoiding the most. Yeah, it definitely speaks to how nascent these markets actually are, that a few rumors, right, can destroy enough investor confidence that they wouldn't engage in the obvious arbitrage of buying something for 90 cents on the dollar and then immediately redeeming that 90 cents for a dollar. Like it's about as risk-free a trade as you can make, assuming the money is actually there. Uh, But I guess the parallel would be something like a money market breaking the buck. Uh, or, you know, I remember trading the currency markets when the, when some of these other pegs failed, like when the Swiss franc peg failed. Um, and then there were these situations in history where like the British pound peg failed. Like there, this is not unique to the cryptocurrency space and it's not unique to stable coins. And I think the reason people genuinely worry about this happening is because it's not just a problem for stable coins. It's a problem for currencies period. People can foresee these kinds of scenarios because they've happened with traditional currencies. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, You know, we've spent a fair amount, well, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff from first principles, but we've also spent a lot of time trying to study what's happened. You know, exchange rate pegs are not new. They've been around for a long time in various different forms. And so, you know, there's kind of the sense in which a stable coin is a new technology in crypto, but an old technology um, for the world. Yep. No, it's a good perspective to have. And obviously you're very serious people tackling very serious problems. I I think that it's very responsible that, you know, a a lot of technical innovations kind of get designed in a vacuum in the sense that they are sort of agnostic towards history. And they're just like, well, technology is different now. We can build newer, better things. It's no longer relevant. Whereas I think, especially in the case of crypto economics, it's really just economics. There's a lot of lessons that we can draw from historical successes and failures. And ultimately, most currencies have failed, right? We, we don't use yep. Roman coins uh, and we're not transacting in gold for the most part. Uh, just things change and you can easily envision a future, a future with stable coins, just because I can easily envision a, a past that didn't have a lot of things that we have now, including being off, you know, being on versus being off the gold standard. Right. So let's assume things change. Uh, you alluded at the beginning of our conversation about this phase two, right? Like, let's say reserve succeeds. Let's say we pull this off. We have this stable coin taking on all of the good qualities of digital money uh, and reducing some of the you know, current limitations with, with digital assets, with digital cash, what, what happens next? We've got a stable coin. Let's, let's, let's be visionaries for a second. I know you like to do this. What are we building next? You know, I, I think that it's, you're right. I do like, um, thinking about these scenarios. Um, I, I, but I will say that, 
you know, I, I kind of think that whatever we guess now, there's almost no chance that we'll be right because it's because it's so open-ended and so many different actors will be involved in shaping it. But with that caveat, I will go ahead and speculate. So, um, you know, one thing I've started to think about lately is that, you know, if you, if you imagine you are, uh, the founder of a new company and you're running an internet business of some kind that is dealing with people's bank accounts and credit cards to process payments and, and, um, you're operating in one jurisdiction and then you want to move your service to a new jurisdiction We have to set up new banking relationships. You have to like learn a new financial system um, You have to deal with the difficulties of transmitting money back and forth even just between your sub branches um, as an international uh, corporation um, I think there's a lot going on there that you can sort of actually just get around if you have uh, or not get around. You just don't even have to think about it in the first place if you have a single global database of money. Um, and that that's kind of one example where I, I think that um, the impact of that, it's kind of like mundane and uh, sort of feels sort of like, you know, a, a detail about accounting that like nobody wants to think about. It's not It's not part of like a sexy consumer story. But it might actually really notably change the experience and the feasibility of scaling businesses around the world. Um, and so it could be that that does something important for, like, uh, you know, the globalization of various different services. Um, and I, I, I share the, like, non-sexy example because um, I think it illustrates the fact that there might be a bunch of kind of things behind the scene like that that happen. But let me let me give another one. Um, so right now, if you want to create a new financial instrument, that's usually implemented with, um, you know, basically a, a legal framework, right? It's like, okay, we'll, we'll make an agreement between two parties. We'll formalize our mutual understanding of who will give money back and forth to whom under what circumstances. Um, and uh, that's something that, you know, where, where the legal system permits us to do that. And so that's allowed us to like really massively kind of complexify our systems for, you know, capital allocation and formation and so on, um, which many argue has been like a really useful thing for the global economy. This is now something, you know, once these systems are all built right, where we have, you know, fast smart contract platforms and stable cryptocurrencies where you can start doing those things in a totally automated way. Um, in, in a way that doesn't even really require the legal backing because everyone can look at the code and be pretty confident about what it's going to do. And so you can start having financial like capital allocation innovation um, across borders between companies um, uh, that's just based on kind of the, the, the reliability of code execution. And, that, and that's another way in which um, you know, I think we could see like a pretty notable change to how capital flows around the world because of that reduced dependence on the legal system. Yeah, I, I think that that's, we need to do more work, right, on on the vision as, as a space so that people don't lose track of why we're doing this stuff. Because as you said, some of it is not a very sexy application of these new technologies. It's not all Lambos and Rainbows. Uh, <laughs> it, there's a lot of, you know, we're really laying the the cable for, for something really, really new, really exciting, um, but it's a few steps away, right? And as you said, 
because it's so hard to project, reasonable people kind of walk away from making these kinds of projections. It would be like, you know, you're in the 80s, you're trying to predict Amazon. Right. It's it's right. not it's not safe to make those predictions, um, at right. least with any degree of confidence. And at the same time, if you're trying to capture the imagination of the broad public, if you're trying to build a movement, uh, you do have to engage in that visioning. And I do believe that we are trying to build a, a global movement behind these technologies because we've gotten complacent with business as usual. I'm wondering, like, what do you think we can do? You know, obviously, everybody's got a very different perspective in this space. People have different uh, technologies that they're personally invested in. They have different projects they're trying to scale and build. What do you think would work? What do you think we could all get behind? All of us people who are trying to build decentralized technologies, decentralized networks. What can we all agree on that you think will succeed in capturing the public imagination a little bit? about like why this is all so important? How, how are we going to make it like very real for people? Mm, that's a good question. Um, there's an application. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if this is hitting the nail on the head, but there's an application of this decentralized technology that I recently was exposed to that I, I think um, could communicate a lot to a broader audience. So suppose that you have um, a fast smart contract pl platform and that allows for um, two things inside of a virtual reality game. So imagine you're playing virtual reality games and there are um, governance systems built into the game uh, where people inside of the game are, are making decisions. And in particular, those decisions end up really impacting um, the the property in the game like the ownership of the items in the game mm -hmm. in such a way where people start to feel like they really do own those digital objects in the game in a way where they can't be taken away and and this is something it took me a while to to become convinced that this was a real application that, that kind of passed like the do you need a blockchain test mm -hmm. where um apparently and i'm not a gamer myself but apparently in games it's common for the developers of the games, the, the issuers of the games to add more and more game items in such a way where it kind of inflates the, the economy or something. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can give people that sense of ownership and thus give sort of real meaning to kind of pseudo legal decisions that are made inside of that game environment, especially if it's a virtual reality environment, um, I think that's kind of an example case where you can get across the point of having uh, digital objects that are non-replicable, um, where you kind of have that, that sort of property ownership over them to people, even without them really understanding the technology um, over, the, over the course of time. So that's, that's, one, that's one example case. But to your question, like, how do we, how do we explain this and, and get people to really get it right now? I don't, I don't know if you can. Like, I, I, I guess we'll see. Um, it's, I, I haven't been able to do that. But what you're saying, I guess, is that it's not necessarily critical for the success of the technologies at this stage for people to understand it and, and have that emotional resonance. What's important right now is solving the fundamental technical challenges like you're doing with Reserve. I think that's right. Um, you know, the, I think a, a negative side effect of the future not being clear is the amount of volatility that will exist in the markets where people get, you know, super excited and then super bearish 
probably over and over again until it's real um, because it'll just be hard to tell if it's real. And, um, you know, uh, that, that's, that's something where, you know, if we could come to more of a consensus about what was going to happen, then things could proceed in a bit more orderly of a fashion. Mm -hmm. um, so anyone who's in this industry, you know, you're in for a chaotic financial ride over the coming, you know, many years. But here we go back to mimetic engineering, right? And this, all of these ideas, you know, we have generated some memes in the decentralization space, this idea of hodling, this idea of biddling. I don't really like that one. It's just hard to say. <laughs> yeah. um, but they have a purpose, this idea that like, come what may, you have to continue to believe in the future of this kind of digital money. You have to believe in the future of decentralized applications. And I think as more of these applications, you know, you say become real, I guess what would be fair to say is become tangible, like you can go hands on with them. We talked about games uh, on a previous episode of this podcast with coin artist who's working at uh, blockade games in neon district. And she really believes that games will be this great onboarding tool for the broad public. I'm coming to believe it as well. Uh, we're definitely gonna have future guests on to talk about it as well. But I think I see a, a world in which stable coins and, and the economies that they're going to enable play a huge role in those. In that way, I'm seeing, and tell me if you agree, I'm seeing stable coins as a big leverage point, as a big enabling technology for a lot of these future innovations, and one that might be more invisible than others. Yeah, no, I think that could be. And, and I think that, you know, if um, Reserve or another project like it really, really works, then it could be that in a year or two years, um, there aren't lots of mentions of Bitcoin in the mainstream media. There are lots of mentions of that real cryptocurrency because, you know, the, the story of cryptocurrency really becoming money, that's something that people will be very excited about. Um, it has a lot of implications. You know, it could be really, really beneficial in a lot of ways. It could be really disruptive. I think it could be that the people in emerging markets um, will actually understand the importance of it um, before people in, you know, the US or, or Europe, etc. Um, because it is perhaps much more meaningful to them. Um, but even even if it is just a news story for a lot of people in um, developed countries, uh, it's certainly something that will catch a lot of attention. This is all super exciting. I know we're in very early stages here. Uh, not just as an industry, but also reserve protocol itself. Uh, I'm really excited to see what you guys build next. I like reading your stuff because, as you said, it's it's not takedowns, right? All of it is very insightful and very considered. And uh, I enjoy uh, having more of that kind of content in my life. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate uh, having you on today and being able to hear some of that considered insight. And I'm glad I forced you to do something at least that made you a little uncomfortable in, in making these completely uh, uncertain predictions, all of which, of course, will be wrong, except for the ones that are right. Um, but if people are looking to learn more about Reserve in particular, is there anywhere they can go to read more, learn more? Yeah, come to reserve.org um, and you can you can read... Um, some articles on our blog. Uh, we're working hard to release a bunch of writing about our protocol itself and how it works. And you can join our Telegram and, and start asking us questions anytime. That's exciting. I will definitely put those links in the episode description as well. But Nevin, it was a pleasure to have you on Decentralize This today. I wish you the best of luck and hopefully we can talk on the show in the future.
All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Enigma, you can visit us at www.enigma.co. You can go to our blog at blog.enigma.co. You can join our Telegram group at t.me slash Enigma Project. If you're curious about anything we talked about in the podcast today, make sure you follow the links below in the episode description. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on Medium so you don't miss our next awesome episode and interview. Otherwise, thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time on Decentralize This. I'm Tor Bear. Have a great day.